Hey everybody, talkingbook.pub is a non-profit audiobook publisher of independent literature. We are located in Asheville, North Carolina, and because we are a nonprofit, uh, donations and help from people like you who love these books and love these recordings really helps a lot. So if you want to get involved, donate to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash talkingbook, or go to our website, talkingbook.pub, and read about our mission, send us an email, give us a call, whatever you want to do. But enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hello, my friends. Chris Hartram here, the Talking Book Podcast. Today is an awesome episode conversation book, Blood-Soaked Buddha, Hard Earth Pascal by Noah Cicero. You know, when you're, when you're talking to somebody for the first time who's writing you've been following for years, this is probably needless to say, but you really realize like, man, I'm really lucky. I'm lucky that I have the chance to add a little bit, enjoy a little bit in this fun all these books being made by these great people with these great ideas. So yeah, definitely humbled to be a part of it and be hanging out and talking to someone like Noah Cicero, whose book, Blood Soaked Buddha, Heart Earth Pascal, is absolutely, I don't want to say life-changing because it sounds cheesy, but it's kind of true. You'll hear on the podcast, I think I said it like four times. He talks about Buddhism in a very fresh way, you know? It's usually very academic. It's usually very scholarly and uh, and mysterious, you know, but this is very, very practical. It's a very real take on this thing that is not, you know, religion or mysticism or whatever. It's just a smart way to think about your moments or whatever. Don't listen to me. I'm not eloquent, but uh, yeah, this book is great and this conversation is great. So here is my conversation with Noah Cicero, author of Blood Soaked Buddha, Heart with Pascal out now from Trident Books, and we get to hear an excerpt of the audiobook that we recorded with the narrator, Sarah Morsi, and she's awesome. Uh, so the book sounds great, but anyway, here it is. Hello, is this Chris? Hey, Noah. How are you doing? Doing well, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing okay. No, it's weekend now. Yeah, that's great. Did you uh, did you work today? Yeah, I worked. Yeah, I yeah. work Monday through Friday. Right. Yeah. Totally same. Yeah, it feels good. It's it's Friday and what? It's like seven o'clock there, right? Yes, it's seven o'clock. I'm sorry it has to be so late for you. No. Yeah. No problem, man. I, I'm just. Uh, I'm glad that we you know, finally got the chat. We've been kind of going back and forth for so long. It's cool to, to finally hear the sound of your voice and, and just, you know, have a, have a human chat. Yeah, it's nice. Um, thank you very much for, um, making the audio and everything. Oh yeah, yeah of course. I mean, it was our pleasure. Thanks so much for doing it with us. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I probably told you this many times, but, uh, um, you know, blood soaked Buddha ended up being, uh, um, we'll get into that later, but you know, ended up being super special to me and uh, us talking. Oh. Work, so yeah, I lo- loved it. It was, it was super fun to to work on. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. So, so how are you? Where 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 are you right now? You're at your house. Uh, tell me tell me where you're at. Oh, I'm in my bedroom. Um, I might go outside and hit a cigarette, but it's pretty quiet, so it should be good for the recording. Nice. Yeah, it actually sounds really really crystal clear. I was um. I was talking to um, to Bud uh, Smith not too long ago for an episode, uh, and he uh, 
he's in Jersey City, you know, and and uh, yeah, it was it was very noisy. And so wherever you are right now, I don't I don't know if you want to tell me what it's like where you are, but it sounds perfect, like you're on a professional microphone or something. Oh, oh, oh! Well, I live in when um, have you ever been to Las Vegas? Actually, it's a funny story that you said that because there was a time, maybe. Um, almost three years ago, after I had my first child with my partner, we went to Las Vegas and I, you wouldn't remember this because at the time we didn't know each other, but I had reached, I reached out to you very kind of anonymously and you, I knew you were a writer that lived in Las Vegas and you actually told me, uh, in a few brief emails where I should go in Vegas to that bookstore. That's really cool there. Um, and so I Writer's was, Coin- yeah, yeah, that's right. So coincidentally, um, I went to Vegas one time and actually got a couple of tips from you. And it was like for, it was, you know, like I said, three years ago, very brief, but, uh, but yeah, I, I went there and I, I really liked it. Yeah. So in Vegas, it's kind of like the same, um, civic design as Phoenix. They think, I think it is, might've never been the Phoenix that people say that where the outskirt, the, um, the auto part even like downtown or the place where the business is, is like they have like walls around everything and they have like apartment complexes that are two stories that are huge. Like 2000 people live in these huge sprawling apartment complexes with pools and gyms. And um, there's walls around them to keep the sound out that are like very thick. Huh? Okay. And I'm like, I'm like, it's hard to describe. Like it's a huge, it's kind of like almost like, a long row of houses, and they're all like this kind of Mexican color almost. It's really, you can go into it, and you like, this looks like Mexico or something. This is kind of a Mexican way of painting. That makes sense. That's and, what I imagine, like a pastel kind of Southwestern kind of vibe going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm on the inside of this kind of huge thing, so it's all the sounds from the street is blocked pretty good. Oh, that's cool. So, you know, my uh, very, you know, small amount of, you know, experience in, in Vegas and kind of where I was in downtown in the strip and all that area. Where are you located in, you know, when, when I think of Las Vegas, like where would you be kind of located your place? Um, so I'm in the Northwest part. Okay. It's called like, um, it's by Summerlin. Um, if you came to Vegas and you said the word Summerlin, people would know exactly where you were talking about, but okay. Um, it's like the Northwest part and it's, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it takes me about, if there's no traffic, I can get to downtown 12 minutes, like 13, 14 minutes there and back. But if there's traffic, it takes me like 20 during the day. That's cool. I can't, um, I don't know if I've ever read this before, but are you, how did you find yourself in Vegas? Why do you live in Las Vegas? Is that where you're from originally? No, I'm from Ohio. Okay, that's right. I, I'm from Ohio, too. Um, oh, where are you from in Ohio? Worcester. I don't know if you know Worcester, Ohio. Okay. Yeah, I know. I knew someone from there once. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, my mom went to the College of Worcester, and like my dad's whole family still lives in Worcester. That's a very boring place. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. pretty boring. You know, the one, <laughs> the one interesting thing about Worcester that I have uh, is when I was a kid, I guess I was in middle school, my mother graduated from, and I tell this story all the time because uh, it's my one thing, but uh, my mother went back to college uh, when we were young, and I was, I guess actually, no, I definitely would have been in, in elementary school, but she graduated with 
Duncan Jones, I think his name is, David Bowie's son. And David Bowie was at the graduation. And I, yeah. and I met him and, like, touched his hand. And so that's my one uh, cool story about a famous person and Worcester. Wow. I have a funny famous person story from Oberlin. Tell me. Where where I, it was like, two, it was the year like 2000, 2001, and we went to a Sleater Kinney show in nice. Oberlin, and it was about one year before the White Stripes got famous, mm-hmm. and we were just all smoking, and Jack White just stood there with us and talked. <laughs> like, he was, a, he was the opener. It was, the, they were the opener. For and Sleater Kinney, that's there, awesome. Like, he was just talking. He was like, yeah, yeah, I gotta go over here. Yeah, yeah. Like, this kind of normal voice. Like, you don't see him talk in that normal voice anymore. Like, a guy, he said, I don't know, he must have been fucking 20, early 20s then. <laughs> Right. But yeah, he still was like a guy. He was like a guy. He's like a normal and, human uh, being at that time. He was like a normal human being guy. Yeah. So we had our, <laughs> our Ohio moments. What a weird. David Bowie and Jack White. David Bowie and Jack White. I'm sure, you know, David Bowie, uh, re- God rest his soul, and Jack White. I'm sure they're, they're thinking of uh, Chris Hartram and Noah Cicero in some ways, I'm sure, still. They're telling, I'm sure they're doing that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. D- Bowie's in heaven talking about me, and, and Jack White's probably in Nashville or wherever he is, and he's talking about you. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> but uh, so, what, why did you? What? How did you find your way to Vegas? I, I just I like the when I was in Vegas that time we we um we uh, I was there with my partner. Um, I I really thought um, you know I like the heat and I like this kind of strange place and I'm sure the bookstore was really cool that you told me to go to and I I like gambling and I was like this is kind of like a fun, cool, weird place. Like kind of uh, I like it. I could live here. Do you think I should live there? Yeah, um, it's very nice. You get an apartment or a house, and it's always sunny. Always, always, always sunny. And when it rains, it's, like, really fun. Like, everyone runs outside. Like, one time it's it snowed just for, like, an hour about a month ago. And all, all me and all the lawyers and everyone ran outside um, and, like, stood and looked at it. And um, so it's really exciting when anything like that happens. And it's really nice here because you can go to the mountain, Mount Charleston, and about 40 minutes from where I live, and there's snow, beautiful mountains, and you can go hiking every Sunday in a different place. And you won't make it back to the same places. Like every six months we make it back. We start we start over every six months. That's so <clears throat> going to new places. But we go every Sunday. There's enough <clears throat> places to hike that uh, you you really, I mean, we've been here four years and maybe we've been down the same trail four, maybe a couple of our favorite trails four or five times, I'd say. That's awesome. So, you know, we, you and I both live in very um, different kinds of uh, terrains, you know, but I guess in some ways they're similar because, you know, we live in a very like hikey place, mountainy place in Asheville, North Carolina. So we're constantly doing like the outdoor thing and and going hiking. Oh, you are? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Um, I'm kind of turning over a new leaf and trying to be more of a person who enjoys the beautiful outdoors. But you know, we're in the Appalachian Mountains and everything, um, and so you know, it's very beautiful. We're like sitting in the mountains, and so I'm like trying to make it a part of my new, you know, dad life to like, you know, go hiking more, enjoy the nature more, so that my my uh, my kids can can also do that and. So, yeah, that's cool. So Vegas has that as well. 
Um, yeah, I grew up. Yeah, wait, you asked me how I came to Vegas. Yes, that's right. I got, it, it was an accident. It was like I came back from Korea, and the people I was living with who were basically my family um, that I got when I was an adult, and um, they moved to Vegas. And they were like, oh, don't get a job because we're all moving to Vegas. So I went, but they were like, we're not moving until August. So I went to the Grand Canyon and lived and just kind of waited it out as a cashier at the Grand Canyon. And then after that, I went to Vegas. That's amazing. So it was but, kind of like this. You, go ahead. No, go ahead. What was your question? I was just, no, I was just kind of going to comment um, that it, it, would you say, it sounds like it was kind of this like, post like expatriate, uh, you know, moving back to the States, like, you know, but let's just make a decision and do something. Cause there was nothing else to do. Kind of. Yeah. I didn't want to go back to Ohio. Ohio sucks. And, um, I never want to live there again. And I go back maybe every two years and I don't even tell anyone because I only go for like four days <laughs> and, and I spend like two days with, um, a certain group of people. And then I spend two days like in my hometown at a hotel alone and I just go to the restaurants that I miss. And then I maybe say hi to like one person and then I leave. <laughs> I don't funny. even like, you'll never see on Facebook, like Noah went back to Ohio. Right? <laughs> right. You'll never see it. Cause I'll never tell anyone. I don't tell anyone. I tell the people that I like in Cleveland, there's like a group of people in Cleveland that I enjoy being around and I'll go and talk to them and I'll spend, I'll spend the night at their house for two nights. And then I'll like, rent a car and I'll drive and I'll sit in this restaurant that I grew up going what's, to what's like almost every week. Oh, it's called Yankee kitchen and I'll sit in it and I'll go to Bellaria and I'll eat pizza and, um, I will just, and then I'll just drive around for like two, three hours. just like looking at things and then I'll like get out of the car and walk around and look at it and then I'll get back in the car and then I drive back to Cleveland Huh. That, that's interesting. I guess, you know, I, Ohio in my uh, mem memory is like a, obviously not a really cool place, but like I think because I lived there only when I was a kid and then we moved when I was you know, going into middle school, I, I never got to experience anything uh, negative. So in my head, it's still like this childhood place that I left when I was like in sixth grade. Did I mean, oh, okay. like, did you grow up there? Like you went to high school there and you came of age there? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And all that happened there. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Man. Yeah. All that. Did you say Genki kitchen? Genki kitchen. Like Genki, like, like Japanese Genki. Genki, like feeling happy. No, 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 no. Like Yankee, like Yankee. Oh, Yankee. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. That makes more sense. Like Yankee, yeah. Yankee doodle dandy. Okay. That of. makes sense. That meant sounds more Ohio-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Yankee doodle dandy. There's a, re a Chinese restaurant I know, like I haven't gone to, but it's called Main Moon and they have award-winning dumplings that are just delicious and I haven't <laughs> ate those in probably five or six years and... <laughs> I'm very sad, but they have really good, they have a place called Fat Dumpling in Las Vegas. They have a Chinatown in Las Vegas. And um, if you're like a hipster and you're going out for the night, you go to Chinatown. That sounds cool. That sounds like a, that makes sense. Yeah. And there's like a Chinatown. It's like basically four plazas and you go in the plazas. And then you end up at this place called Golden Tiki, which is like, oh my God, one of the best tiki bars you'll ever go to. And you get super, you get two drinks and you get trashed and you just like Uber home. 
<laughs> or drive drive your car drunk down uh on down a busy street. Man, you're really you're making uh Las Vegas sound I remember I at the beginning of the, the Vegas part of the, the conversation just now I was like, Man, when I was there I really liked it. Should you think I should live there? I remember my, my partner Danny and I, who actually designed uh you know, the new cover for Blood Soaked Buddha and stuff. She does, uh, she is talking book with me. And, uh, but we, we were, we've joked many times about moving to Vegas. So you're making it sound great. I mean, should we, do you, would you say to your other friends who like doing similar stuff, like, yeah, you should live in Vegas? Um, it is, uh, the thing about it is it really, it's really specific on what kind of jobs, um, right. make money. That's true. So I don't, I don't know what jobs you have. I don't know what skills you have. Right. Let's see. What skills do I have? I can make audiobooks. I can uh, talk to people. <laughs> what's your What's your job? Well, I I do mostly this, but I also do stuff like um, wow. See, I was a uh, so I taught English in uh, in Asia through my twenties, just like you did, and then uh, I um, I was a bartender for many years after that, and I've done. Um, like I've done like sales stuff in like startupy type companies before. I did. Uh, I I started doing stuff that I really liked, like this. Yeah, we're doing you now. Have a, you have a you have a bachelor's degree. I do. I do have a bachelor's degree in in English What's and your, creative writing. Yeah, if you can pass the praxis test, they will make you a teacher the next day. Hmm. A high school teacher. Is that what, um, is that what you do? No, I work at a law firm. I'm a paralegal. Oh, that's right. I've I've heard that before. What? Uh, <laughs> okay. Why do you want to be a paralegal? That's interesting. Oh, because everyone was like, "Yeah, you should do that because you're obsessed with punctuality and you're always paranoid about doing things right, <laughs> and you're really self-critical and you're really like a cutthroat kind of person." And so I have a political science bachelor's degree and then I just went on the website and it was like you take 12 classes three classes a semester and we'll give you a paralegal degree and um, we'll get you an internship we will get you an internship and we will get you a, basically a job so I was like wow so I was like okay I'll do that wow that sounds cool so does <laughs> being a paralegal would you say it pays better than being a high school teacher no I mean if you're a paralegal no, I can't pass the praxis test because I suck at geometry so much. And oh, my try. God. Yeah, I mean, if there's mathematics involved, no, I'll be very honest. I was um, I was homeschooled for some of high school because we moved around so much, and uh, I'm only good at a couple of things academically. Like, I'm not um, – I'm really bad at math, so I doubt I would, I would pass that test. So if I move to Vegas, uh, I'll try to be a paralegal. I probably won't be able to because I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not punctual at all. And uh, then I guess I'll just wear, I'll like, you know, sling drinks or maybe, uh, you know, deal cards or something. A bartender makes like 40000 a year here. That's not bad. Yeah, that's good. No, no. My friends, he makes, he, he's a server and he makes like forty, fifty thousand 50000 a year. And he doesn't even work 40 hours a week. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I always, uh, when I was there losing money uh, playing blackjack um, while my, uh, while Danny was upstairs sleeping, you know, I had maybe too many drinks in me and I was like watching the card dealers and I'm sure everyone does this. I'm sure you maybe heard this before, but I was like romanticizing the people dealing cards as like an interesting job. Is that, <laughs> do you, have you heard that or have you, ever thought, have you thought that? I'm not, yeah. This might sound really weird, but I've never met 
or been friends with a car dealer. I have never been friends with anyone. I know I have one friend who works in a casino as a server, but I've never become friends with anybody who does that. Hmm. My one friend, he's a professional poker player and he lives in the casinos basically. And I get his stories and his side of it and his life might be viewed as romantic, I guess. Sure. Yeah. There's, that, there's something about that. What's the, um, I don't know if you know this, what's the very first Paul Thomas Anderson film about playing uh, in casinos, Hard Eight or something like that? You know that movie? No, I don't, I don't know that movie. It's, it's, it's a really cool movie. I saw it not long ago, but it reminded me of that just now. My Yeah, my buddy, uh, he put himself through graduate school playing online poker, and I thought, oh, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds cool. Like, I'm a cool guy. I could do something cool like that. And then I, I just I tried it, and I didn't win anything, so I stopped. No, my friend, he wins lots of money on online poker and he goes and plays in the casino and he gets VIP stuff all the time. And he brings us to Caesar's Buffet um, <laughs> because because he gets the VIP things. But the VIP says, unless you spend over $100 and bring someone with you, then we can't let you use the whatever ticket that we, they gave him. So this ticket has like, so he brings me and my friend like every three months and we go and it's $85 a person, but we get it all for free and we get to sit in the VIP section. Oh man. Yeah. He's, he's poker mat. That's what we call him. He uh, <laughs> runs identity. He, well, I met him because he, he ran identity theory, which was a really big website for a long time. And he like loves to read books and, so I made friends because I went on Facebook like, when I first got here. And I said, if anyone lives in Las Vegas, please tell me on my Facebook. I don't care who you are. And <laughs> people were like, yeah, I live here. And some of them became my friends. Some of them didn't. So, Yeah, that sounds cool. I'll definitely come back there at some point because I like um, uh, warm climates, dry climates. And I like uh, gambling in the night. I, as I said before, I tend to romanticize things that maybe it's not necessary. So I'll come back there and I'll try to uh, get more tips from you when I'm there. Okay, that sounds good. I'll take you out. We'll go somewhere nice. That'd be really fun. Have you ever been to North Carolina, where I'm at right now? No, i never been there. Oh, wait. I mean, like, I think I drove a car through it. Sure. Yeah. Just, just us chatting this one time and reading your book, Blood Soak Buddha and stuff, I think... Um, I think you would like it here and then we could also go hiking so we could trade, trade locations. Yeah. Asheville. Uh, people, my friend Poker Matt loves that place. He's lived there. Poker Matt? He, he used it. to come here? Yeah. Yeah. He comes there all the time. Man, I need to, yeah. money. You need to connect me with Poker Matt. We'll, we'll, we'll hang out and it'll be like, we're hanging out vicariously with, you know. Okay. I'll tell him that. Yeah. Well, Las Vegas is also very nice because people come here all the time. Sure, yeah. And you have things like one week, someone I used to work with in Ohio will come out and they'll Facebook me. They'll hang out with me for a day. And the next week, a writer from Boston or somewhere will come out and they'll be like, Noah, hang out with me for a day. And you don't get that in other places. You don't get that. Because people from the east don't fly all the way to LA. They're mm -hmm. like they're scared of LA because mm -hmm. LA is so huge. It's kind of daunting. But Las Vegas is not daunting. It's it's made for the eastern tourists to come, and it's made for the German and the Japanese person to get off the fucking plane and walk around in this kind of really straight line <laughs> and be hurt. And and they're like herded around these two areas, and and then it's done. It's over. 
<laughs> it's yeah, it's like a, it's like a ride. It's like an amusement park that's tailor made. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're like a white mom, your mom in uh, you know Ohio or Pennsylvania, you get off the plane and they herd you through these different casinos. And if you're a German or Japanese tourist, they all do the same thing. They get off they get out of the casino, and then they go to downtown, and then they drive them to the North Outlet Mall. Um, and it's all part of like one thing. It's like, and, and you go to the casino, you go to the downtown, you go to the North Outlet Mall. And because you go to the North Outlet Mall, it's just Japanese and German tourists and French tourists all buying like American um, last year's stuff. Are there many? Uh, cool. Are there many South Koreans that come do that as well? Where you could be like a like a guide. <clears throat> You're like, hey, I live there. You guys want to check out the oh, yeah. Vegas? No, I don't. I don't speak Korean. I only know like couple like a hundred words did you stay in korea or japan or china i stayed in in japan i lived in japan for in tokyo for, oh wow wow when i was in korea we were told we had to hate japan <laughs> yeah i mean oh. we uh we were told that koreans uh, hated us in japan so uh i i, I yeah. went to, i went to south korea uh quite a few times one um one of my sweet uh buddies uh jong ho uh she uh she's from uh from a, a, a place right out of, outside of Seoul. So I would go there sometimes and stay with her family. So I, I love Korea. It's awesome. Okay. Okay. Where did you stay outside Korea? Seoul? I can't remember the name of the place. I mean, I just remember we would go to Seoul and we would take a train and then we would be at like an endless row of apartment buildings that were like very tall. And then the, <laughs> yeah. fl the floors were really hot and it kind of gave me a headache. Uh, but the food was amazing. The, I, I mean, that's every time I went, it was like the same thing. So I don't really remember. I know it was a it was a Korean word, and I don't remember how to say it. She'll, yeah, she'll probably listen Songnam. to this. Oh wait, where is it? I live in Songnam. God, that sounds familiar. But I'm probably just thinking that they all sound similar. But uh, how long did you live there? One year. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's great. When I was reading the uh, the the book the first time when I got it, uh, I, I was reading that part, you know, and I was thinking like, I wonder if when Noah um, came back, if it felt a little bit like when I came back, um, you know, just being like, okay, I did this, this is so cool, and then you were saying that, you know, when you came back, everybody's like, well, that doesn't really account for much. Um, you know, job-wise or something like that. I was just wondering if your experience was similar to mine when I came back from Tokyo. Yeah, nobody cares. Everyone, <laughs> um, I, as far as I can tell in American society, um, if you're willing to do STEM all day, like math or engineering, you're willing to do that all day. They will pay you lots of money. And we, as a society, um, have been trained over the last 30 years or so for, I don't know when it started, um, to view anything besides STEM as, as, um, evolutionarily weak, kind of like you, you, you're, you're bad in evolution. You, you failed in some way. And so you deserve less than whatever, what the math people get, what the science people get. And, there used to be a thing, I think, where you would come back from some kind of long, abroad thing. You can see it in old novels where they would be like, yes, this person must be very efficient if they survived abroad. But now we view kind of people like that as suspect, like a, sus a 
suspect of, of what were you doing there? Why are you think you're so smart? Why do you deserve to go there? So now it, instead of it being, we, we've been trained to have this reflex. The average person has this reflex to view that person as kind of dangerous almost. Like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Sorry, am I being recorded now or not? I don't know. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. This is the podcast. We're just, yeah, we're just talking. Yeah. Oh, this is okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I should mean, have said that I in just, the beginning. I, I was, I usually just, you know, we'll call, uh, I just figured, you know, we'll chat and then, um, you know, it, it just, it's more fun that way. You know, there's no, okay. to me, yeah, I just so, want to, to me, I just want to talk to you as opposed to like, be like, thanks for coming on the show today. Know this row. Okay. Yeah. So I think we're really, there's a real reflex, emotional reflex where people who don't do STEM are somehow like they don't, they're, they don't deserve things. They don't deserve to have better things and maybe trying to like liquidate them in some kind of like small incremental way. That's so funny. I'm so I'm I'm glad you said that. While you were saying that, I was like doing the classic like itching to like agree with you during that uh because uh the, what I experienced when I um came back from living abroad and I lived there for a long time. I lived there I lived over there for like 6 years. And uh, the I, in my head, it was like, wow, what an, uh, you know, my friends and I who were doing that, like, what a cool accomplishment to live abroad, you know. But then when I came back, um, uh, it was more so a questioning of, like, what were you running away from? What were you hiding from? Why did you live over there? Why did you do that? Like, what, you know, what was the problem? It, in my head, it was like this cool thing. And my friends all, of course, you know, normal people thought it was cool. But job-wise, you know, it was like, huh that's a long time to be doing that. Like, what was the issue? So I know what you mean in some ways about how it was maybe viewed, you know, negatively or something. Yeah. And like what I really figured out is like, uh, you have to show a lot of sincerity to get jobs. Like if you're like, when I went to the paralegal school, I got like really sincere and I did an internship and I'm really sincere at my job. And I just like, I, I go there and I play it like it's a game and I, you know, fake it till I make it or whatever, you know, <laughs> I do it. And then like, you have to do that. Like the average person has this, uh, matrix in their mind, this belt and schlong, I don't know what, whatever word you want to use paradigm where kids in a house and a car and, and credit card bills and all these and the job and the career are all connected and they define themselves through all these um all those connections being made properly and efficiently and 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 so i thought well i'll just do that i'll just connect all these things and be really efficient <laughs> wow and and that's what and it worked and i got a job and, and now i go and spend uh, eight hours a day in a law firm so what kind of you know i don't really know a lot about that that a job as a paralegal, what kind of stuff, you know, in general, without going too far into it, does a paralegal do every day? Um, are you serious? This is really hard. I mean, this is like a job. It's like, okay, no, I mean, so. I, I do boring stuff too. I would, I'm just literally, I'm very genuinely curious, like what a paralegal does. I don't, I don't, I really don't know anything about it. Oh, okay. So you have the lawyers and the lawyers write briefs and oppositions and they go to court and they go to depositions. That's right. what a lawyer does. Sure. So, and then, so they go to hearings, they go to mostly hearings. And I work at a trial law firm, which means we get trials. 
um, we get cases farmed out to us from pre-lit places, from pre-litigation. And this is personal injury. And so we have discovery. And discovery is um, all the evidence, what you would call evidence, but we never say the word evidence there. And so um, discovery is all your medical documents, maybe videos of it happening. Um, how do I say? Uh, the police report, da 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 And I have to take those and I give them to experts. And um, I have to communicate with experts all the time. And so that's my main function. And I have to write the expert disclosure, which is in a personal injury case. And um, you have to you have to have experts, either a neurologist or an orthopedic surgeon or a crash reconstructionist or a biomechanic engineer. And then you take their report. You have to give them to give you a report and you have to do all these invoices and all these things. And you have deadlines. Everything has deadlines. So there's super amounts of pressure to make these deadlines all the time. And so because if you fuck up a deadline, then your case is fucked. So you have to make the deadline. So then, um, <clears throat> then I take the expert reports and then I have to read them and then I have to write this disclosure and I have to write these letters to them. And today I did a subpoena because we're going to have a trial. So I have to do all kinds of things for the trial. And I might spend, you know, I could sit and just research for an hour. And then the next hour I do a disclosure. And the next hour I'm doing some kind of letter. And then I might just be making CDs or something for an hour. I do many things throughout the entire day. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that sounds extremely legitimate and complicated and uh, <laughs> like, a, like attention to detail. I mean, is it one of those... I guess because you're, uh, you know, a writer that I like, um, I, I'm just trying to think, um, you know, that sounds extremely time consuming. So how does that work with, uh, I mean, obviously you make it work, but how does that work with, you know, writing books and stuff like that? I mean, is it one of those jobs where you like come home at five and you're like, oh, I got to stay up all night and continue to work on this? Or is it, is it a very like leave your work at work kind of, kind of thing? Well, I've only been doing it for almost a year. So, um, no, a little bit more, you know, like a year and a half. I've only been doing a year and a half. But I wrote Bloods of Buddha and stuff when I was like, working at a grocery store and stuff. I really haven't written much since then. Sure. Since I started. But because I, I was trying, I'm trying to learn the job. Sure, of course. And that's really taxing. Um, but I'm not, I'm not too stressed about it. I feel fine about it. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that, that's really cool. What a cool new chapter in your life. Like, that's like a like a career. It feels good, right? I'm sure it feels good. I mean, it's okay. I don't know if it feels good. But <laughs> You're like, it doesn't feel great, but it feels all right. It feels all right. I mean, I don't smell after work or anything. <laughs> and um, sometimes we get free lunch and I get an hour long break. So, you know, a cool thing about that job is, you know, because I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm a dumb person when it comes to that kind of stuff you know, besides all the actual stuff, it sounds very cool. You're like, yes, I'm a paralegal. It sounds like a very, like, whoa, paralegal. I mean, maybe it doesn't to other people, but to me it sounds like like a very serious job. I mean, you said you wrote um, Blood Soaked Buddha while working in a grocery store, so I guess just the, as far as, like, language goes, it seems like that's, a, 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 you know, a, like, you know, self-respect, cool position to have, having that job. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it doesn't make you rich or anything, but um, it gives you a sense like you're at work and it's always like you're playing a game and it's and sometimes there's enough pressure that it feels like you're alive. Wow, I like that. 
That's cool. And um, but it's not it's not too much. Like the lawyers work like I don't know, someone will work fifty hours a week, sixty hours a week. I don't have to do that. Right. So I can just go home and um, like I, I can talk on the phone to you right now because I don't have to do that. And I bet there's a lawyer there at the office right now working. Yeah, I bet. Wow. So, yeah, I mean that's cool. I'm. So you wrote this book, uh, Blood Soaked Buddha, when you were working in a grocery store. I, I wanted to ask <clears> you, like. You know, a, a little bit in the book, you talk about kind of how it started, but uh, in general, for someone who might, ha- you know, hasn't read it, h- how did this book come about? Because I know it's a little different than other stuff that you've written before. Um, <clears throat> when I, in like 2009 or 10, I had this dream of writing a philosophy book. Because um, it's like on my, it was on my bucket list. And I was like, okay, I have to write the philosophy book. And I had already read lots of existentialism. And so I read, I took like, I don't know, I was getting my bachelor's and I took like, I don't know, six or eight classes, like every philosophy, political thought class, political thought is like philosophy. Um, if, if don't, um, I know there's, if there's a political science major listening or a philosophy, I know they're not exactly right, but, <laughs> um, political thought and philosophy. And I took a bunch of philosophy classes, political thought. And, um, I read like, <clears throat> so much political philosophy and so much um, philosophy and for years. And, and, and it was my main nourishment. It wasn't novels anymore. It was like, it was like philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. <clears throat> and then like, I thought I had, I would get like, I would think I had the book in my head and then it would like not be right. And then when I went to Korea, I was like trapped um, in Songnam, and I couldn't um, get to a bookstore except for like once every two months, like every like five weeks, because they were only there was an English bookstore only in two places in the whole city. And if me and the girl I was dating at that time didn't want to go to that part of town, there was no way to access a book. So I would get like huge books like Infinite Jest and Two Six Six Six, and like American Tragedy and East of Eden, like these giant books, <laughs> right. and so I could. So they would just last me until the next time I would get there. And I think I read a Pinchon book, but I didn't like it. And um, so uh, I was there and then I came back and I wrote 110 pages of some horrible philosophy book. And I was like, this isn't right either. (laughs) This isn't fucking right. This isn't right. This isn't what I want. This isn't because like with every book, I mean, you have to think about it like this is your first chance this is your chance. Like you have to do it right. This is your only chance. And you have to think about every book like that. You don't have to think about other things like that. Like you don't need to like have sex perfectly every time or like go to work and be perfect every time. Cause you're going to get a chance tomorrow. But if you write books, you maybe, maybe I'll get 12 or 14 chances. And that's not a many chances to do something. You mean like chances to impress, chances to blow people away, like, so this is a big yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how many books can you really write, you know? Right. I mean, unless you're like, most people never make it past 10. Right. I mean, 98% of writers don't make it past 10 finished books. And I'm just like, okay, I have to do this right. This is my one chance to, and I'm really self-critical, I've been told. So I've been, I was like, this has to be done right. And then like, I ended up, I went to the Grand Canyon and I bought like all these kinds of intro to Buddhism books. Like any book that I thought was Buddhist, I bought it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it yeah, like, definitely. It, yeah. it was like histories and, 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 and 
excerpt books and I just sat and I read them. And then I finally, like, after reading, like, 15 of those kind of excerpt books, or I figured out, like, what direction I wanted to go. And then I found um, the Zen books from the Tang Dynasty, like the Wangkalantara Sutra and Bodhidharma and Hunang and Lin Chi. And then after, like, I got those. And I think I listened to, like, every single Alan Watts thing on YouTube. Right. You know Alan Watts. Uh, I know the uh, name. I know it has something to do with that, but I don't. I've never listened to anything or read anything by him. Yeah, on YouTube, it's really fun. Like, go on and, and put in Alan Watts, and like, just, he has like hours, and there's probably over like forty hours of him talking. Like, he's like a philosopher, right? He's like a Buddhist philosopher, and towards the end of his life, they just recorded. He like they recorded all of his lectures. He just started recording them, and then someone put them on YouTube a couple of years ago. And so I just listened to all of those and I just read all these books and I just read them over and over. Like I got so obsessed with Hunang that I read five different translations of the same book. And I, um, so after like that happened, it like kind of came together in my head of what I wanted to do. And, and it just took like seven years or eight, eight years to like finish it in my, to, to do the thing I wanted to do. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, going through this, I guess, period of like research and figuring out like all these different, because Buddhism obviously is kind of a broad topic. You kind of stopped there at the end with Zen. I mean, was there, was there any sect of Buddhism or any like little portion that was like, aha, Eureka, this is the part that I want to talk about the most. Or did you just kind of incorporate a lot of different parts? Um... Say that again? Incorporate different... Well, yeah, no. I found the Zen part, which I really, really liked. Right. Um, that was Lankavantara Sutra and Bodhidharma and Lin Chi and Hunang. And that part was different than the other parts. Because that is... So Zen is very different than, than the, the rest of Buddhism because mm -hmm. it kind of makes this break... Because they didn't really know who the Buddha was. They didn't really care. They just had these books that someone had brought from India and translated. So they kind of like took their own ways with it, and they thought of their own style with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And um, I did like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I, I mentioned in the book and stuff, mm -hmm. when I, in the reincarnation chapter. Yeah. But I didn't have like a fascination or some kind of fetishization where like I connected Korea to Buddhism. Like there wasn't. It was just yeah. like I got these books. Sure. You know, I mean, it makes sense that that wasn't the case. I mean, obviously, um, I thought that too. You know, like maybe someone else might. I was like, okay, so he lived in East Asia for a bit. Most people off the cuff are like, oh, Buddhism, Asia. But it wasn't. It was that's just a coincidence. I mean, it was it was much more complicated than that. Yeah, the one thing it probably did teach me was that um, I could tell the difference between culture and um, Buddhism. I could tell the difference between what was cultural. Because culture is a temporary thing. It just comes and goes. Sure. And like the culture of whatever 
those uh, Buddhists from the year, you know, 400 to 800 lived in is gone. Like those people are gone and um, their dynasty is gone and their culture is gone. And like, yeah, there's remnants, but like, not really. Like there's no, I could tell that there was there. I, I could separate the two in my head in a way that made the, both of them clearer, I guess, in a way. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Were, like in my when 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 uh when I when I was living uh in Japan, I remember thinking, I guess maybe just in retrospect, probably not at the time, but um reading, you know, Blood Soaked Buddha and stuff and thinking about that, like I'm sure I went through the same thing where I was like, This is just you know, current Japanese culture it probably has nothing to do with these concepts, but no matter what, like how much I I try to separate the two in my head there is some kind of, you know, Zen quality or like um, very matter of fact living in the moment quality about uh, the current culture or being over there compared to American culture for me. So probably it probably wasn't accurate, but I did pair the two somehow in my head in some way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I never had that in Korea. I never thought like anyone was living in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I never felt like it at all. That, that's funny. Felt. That's funny. What kind of like? Uh, what do you mean? Like you, you found that it was that it was very much the opposite, or very similar to Americans, or? or... No, I mean they're Koreans, so <laughs> they have their own thing, sure. and they're not. They're not. They're not living in the moment. They're like they have their own thing and they have their own tortures and they have right. their own devils, you know, and they have their own things that torture them. They have their minds and their culture all wrapped up in their head. And so they have that too. I mean, it's just different things, you know, it's just different things. Right. But I didn't get any, any feeling like anything Zen was ever happening <laughs> in Korea. That's so I funny. never, I never felt Zen. I just felt like, Oh my God, you just, drink and sing and dance and, and, and party and teach these kids English and just party some more and get drunk and eat chicken. And that's what I felt all the time. And that seems like what everyone else was feeling because they gave a lot of positive reinforcement to those habits. <laughs> that's funny. That sounds like the exact same country that I lived in for a long time over there, but they're, they're different. I mean, it was just karaoke and drinking too much and teaching and yeah, that, yeah that's very similar. Huh. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's like, I think there's an increase. I never really, uh, I went to like temples and stuff on mountaintops and mm-hmm. I watched like documentaries and, but I didn't really feel deeply concerned with that part of the culture. I don't even know if I was there for culture. I mean, I would just eat food and stuff <laughs> and hang out and walk around and I would I was, I mean, I have a political science degree. So like everyone it's like, I always look at civic design and like architecture and how you put shops in and how you zone things. Sure. And I would, I mean, if, if you're walking around with me in real life and I go to your city, I might ask you like, Oh, um, does it take, what is your bus system like? What is this like? <laughs> this is, <laughs> See, that's funny. So that brings me to this question. Uh, so, you know, having read this book and, and uh, you know, Blood Soaked Buddha Heart with Pascal, I'm walking around now um, because, like I said at the very beginning of this conversation, I really loved it a lot. And I've I've been kind of very broadly kind of just like here and there dabbling in this like poor man's Buddhist concepts every once in a blue moon. And I read this book and I was like, oh, this is like all the stuff I've been thinking about, like put very eloquently. I couldn't say things like this, this is great. 
then like to my partner and my buddy uh, Dave, who's a producer uh, for the audiobooks. I, you know, I keep bringing the book up, and I'm like, you know, remember this thing, remember this thing. So then I was wondering, um, kind of a long way to get to this question, but do, do you find that having written the book that you will like try to, you know, remember things about it in your day to day and kind of, you know what I mean? Or, or is it still just as much of a, the classic struggle of any of us, which I imagine is the answer, but you know what I mean? Like, is it, did it help you in your day to day to kind of write the book in terms of, yeah, you, it helped. It did. I mean, the original, the original book is, uh, it was about 220 pages and I cut like a hundred pages off, but the whole thing was a spiritual exercise in trying to figure out, uh, what was in my head, mm-hmm. like trying to figure out what was me and what was culture and what was my parents and what was this and what is my nature. Like that was the attempt of the whole book, like to figure it out. Like what is me? Like what is me? And does that make sense? Yeah, yeah and, totally. um, But the whole book was like a spiritual exercise. And even the parts that didn't make it into the book um, mean the same thing to me, mean the same kind of spiritual exercise. Right. Like to you, you're reading just like the best parts, like the greatest hits or something. <laughs> but right, yeah, yeah. To me, as I walk the earth, um, the whole 200 and something pages is inside me. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's much more... It's much more jumbled kind of in your brain. I, I got it so perfectly delivered, you know, first by, you know, your written word and then also by Sarah Morsey, uh, shout out to the narrator of the, the audio book, you know, the way she read it. It's such a great delivery of the ideas. So I guess probably I, I am just, like you said, playing out the greatest hits in my head where you have kind of the, con- the crazy confusion of writing the whole thing and editing the whole thing going through the process. So it's different. Yeah, I mean, every book a person writes takes their whole life to write it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what I think about it. Like, that's my whole life. Like, that's my whole life at that moment in my life. That's it. That's it right there in that book. And and that's that's who I am at that moment. Damn, yeah, well said. Did you, uh, so speaking of uh, Sarah and the audiobook and stuff, um, did you, you, obviously you liked it. You liked her, her narration. What, what did you think about um, listening to parts of it versus, you know, reading parts of it? No, I, I liked it. I liked it. Yeah. Cool. I like her voice and stuff. Yeah, her voice was really nice. I thought it was, um, and we already talked about this, but I thought it was a nice way to, it was cool for me, you know, reading it and then listening to it, you know, he- hearing somebody say it, it, it helped a lot, I think, uh, with, with remembering everything. I, l- I love the way that she read the book. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what parts, what parts did you like that you, you mentioned? Jeez, it's hard to say. I mean, I feel like, you know, I read it once and then I listened to it in chunks and then I listened to the finished thing, of course, you know, kind of proofing it. And uh, I mean, I guess the, the stuff that, you know, I keep bringing up to myself is a lot of the mental chatter stuff. I think the stuff that really stuck with me and, and um, uh, you know, among many things, but just off the cuff in this moment a lot of what you talked about of, you know, we have all these thoughts that just like we have, you know, hands and feet and, and fingers and other, and, and a heart, uh, but they're not, you know, not every thought is necessary. And I, I think because I suffer from anxiety and, you know, thinking about the future, past, present, future and stuff like that. I mean, 
even though I've, I, you know, I, I might have heard some of these ideas before, I feel like the way the book, I don't know, goes into it in such a clear, as I said before, eloquent, eloquent way, it, it did, it did alleviate some of my anxiety. I think a lot of the book, uh, which was really, which was, I know that's not, that's that probably is, that's a, that's a big thing to say, but it's true. It really did. Yeah, we do. We have this, uh, we really, and we really think that all of our thoughts matter and, and they really don't. And like barely any of them do. And it's really funny that barely any of them do. I know. I mean, it's such a simple <laughs> idea. I mean, I, I, and I guess the first time I read that, and, and please tell me more about this if you have any thoughts, but I remember thinking like, how the fuck hasn't somebody said this to me a thousand times as a child even, you know? I don't know, but like people, they they act like every thought matters. And you can tell, man, like 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 those, um, <clears throat> what are they called? White guy, old white men. <laughs> and they like walk around and they like just spew their thoughts. And you see them online, like, I'm going to spew my thoughts. I'm going to spew my thoughts. And I think that recognizing a useless thought is so integral right now. And I say, even to, to feminism and, and to the Me Too movement, I don't know, if, like, even that, because it's like, like me and my friend were talking, and she, she's, she's a lesbian feminist, and, and we're like, a girl walked by and, and, and both of us were like, wow, that girl has a, has a nice bottom, you know, a nice butt. And she was like, did I, did my, is my thought a call out, you know? And I'm like, no, it's like, it's just, our thoughts happen. You know what I mean? Like you might think like, oh, this person has a nice butt or you might think that, you know, and you, but you don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to pay attention to it. Or you might stumble upon a YouTube video and you're like, God, I really want to write I won't really want to comment. You're a terrible singer. Right. <laughs> this is a terrible cover. And you don't have to. And then you also have the thought like, oh my God, I'm so terrible. I did one thing wrong at work. And you're like, well, I don't have to think that. Everyone makes one thing wrong, you know, all the time. And, and you don't have to think that. And, and it, it extends and it extends and it extends until you realize that, um, how you say, like Dogen says, like a uh, fish swims in water and never runs out of water and a bird flies in the air and never runs out of air. And it's like, you realize, well, I don't really have to think that much at all because I'm still existing and I'm just still going. And, and my next thing that's going to happen is probably me going to the kitchen to like get a bagel. And then the <laughs> next thing that's going to happen is that I'm going to go see a friend and you get, you know, I mean, like, if you have anxiety, you probably totally know, like, hi, ah, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? How's this going to work? But it doesn't matter. As long as you show up, you'll probably just act normal anyway. You know, you'll probably find your, <clears throat> you'll find your way to the moment. But like, what well, the one thing that, because <clears throat> I grew up around people and I see them every day. A really good example is I was, I was in the car with somebody and I'm not usually in the car with this person. I just ended up in a car with them. And the person in front of us wouldn't turn fast enough. And she just like slammed on my horn. Like I was driving and she was like hitting my horn. <laughs> she reached over and, and hit your horn. Yeah, hit my horn. And um, she's, a lot of people are just like driven nuts all the time. Like they're driving themselves fucking nuts over little things. And like, um, a lot of shyster Buddhists and shyster religious people are like, I'm going to help you get a job. I'm going to help you get a job. I'm going to help you innovate yourself. So you make more money and what Anthony Robbins, whatever his bullshit is, Ted talks bullshit. <laughs> my thing, my thing is not that my thing is to get you 
from your house to work without slamming any horns, without the, with, with like actually like someone almost hits you with their car on the highway and you just laugh. And you think, what a world, what a world, what a world. Or you like, you're like, you're watching like kids, like uh, kids in their early 20s smashing garbage cans, you know, on some video because they're angry about something. And you realize, oh, these are kids. This is what kids do. They're very excited. (laughs) (laughs) You just like, let it happen. You let it happen. And you let, it's, I know it's really hard for people to just let things happen. Like they really, I say this in the book, I think is they demand that reality conform to whatever they think should be happening. And that they have these demands they walk into every situation, into every room. They walk into their kitchen, they can't find a fork, and they fucking flip out. <laughs> I know, I mean, how many times, I mean, maybe not you, but you heard a story where, like, the, the wife doesn't cook the food the right way, and the husband throws the fucking thing down, you know, just throws and goes nuts. Right. And people are always going nuts. Like, it's constant how fucking crazy people are about every moment of their life. <laughs> Let me think about saying it like this. They throw so much weight into every moment of their life and that this should be like this. This is what should, this is my demands. And my demands are not being met. It's like they're holding everything hostage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like they're I don't, they're holding themselves hostages. They're holding the thing. They're holding something hostage, and they're demanding that you should give them these things, or they're going to kill themselves. I guess. <laughs> no, I mean it, it's completely true. I mean the, it's. It, I mean I I think that probably we are we're all held hostage in some way, and 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 uh, that's why I think the book is so, um, you know. I want to say it sounds cheesy, but I want to say important is because, you know, I get every once in a while, I get the chance to record, you know, a book, uh, that's special to me and moves me like, you know, the books that we, you know, I choose or we choose to do, but it's not often that I, you know, we do a book that I'm like, I want to tell people like, this will make your life easier. Um, and I think, you know, all the ideas that you just said, I mean, it's true. Just everybody chill out like this. These ideas are, they're very simple. They're very authentic. I mean, there's nothing to be argued. It's just helpful. Um, so yeah, I mean, thanks for, thanks for organizing it in such a, in such a great way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they were there. These ideas were in existentialism and Nietzsche and I feel like they were there for sure. But like those guys, but those guys were like super excited about other things. <laughs> <laughs> right. They had their, you know, yeah, um, they were excited in their own ways. Yeah. They were super excited, but they come from a time when people were unusually excited about things. <laughs> yeah. yeah <that laughs> is, I guess more that. dangerous times and more excitable times. And maybe we're not so excitable that we can, we can take a different path. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wise words, Noah. What are you? Uh, what What are you working on now? Um, I know Nature documentary came out, Blood Soul yeah. Buddha. What's What's going on now? Oh, I'm just like um, randomly writing short stories and stuff like that. I want to write um, a political book of 
that's like Buddha Buddha in kind of a similar fashion. Um, so I'm kind of reading books now to like train for that. Okay, that's awesome. I can't I can't wait to see. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that probably won't be for a couple of years. But sure. I I mean I feel like it's it's a long term plan, and working in the legal system is kind of like informing me what it, it means, what laws mean and how they work and what the structure is. And then if I read some books, maybe my brain will think of something to write. Yeah. I'm excited to see what, um, what comes out of you next, especially with that influence, like you said, with the legal system, that, that, that should be fascinating. Well, I have, I'm going to put a, but I'm going to put a book out about the Grand Canyon. Um, I wrote a novel, like a short novel about living at the Grand Canyon over the summer and that'll come out next year. Okay. That's great. Yeah, that's 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 super cool. Um I what I said earlier, uh I meant um at some point or another we should uh talk and and hang out on normal terms and you should come to to Asheville. A lot, a lot of the people that uh you know that we've recorded stuff with um you know have come here and and hung out either recorded here or come afterwards and hung out. So anytime you have the ability come come and uh, hang and stay with us and check out Asheville. Yeah. I'm playing a couple of readings and they'll give me an excuse to go. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I think, uh, as I mentioned before, um, uh, Bud Smith, our buddy, he's coming to, to, to stay and hang out for a night and kind of similar, you know, uh, the hook, uh, was we'll plan some readings, come to Asheville, you know, just so we can hang out really. I read his book and it worked. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. That was cool. Uh, I liked it. It reminded me of Ohio and, uh, snow and shoveling driveways. It was real nice. Yeah. When, when we do talk next time, I'd love to hear more about Ohio and your experience with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I lived there. Yeah. It was good. It was like, it was painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to hear about this. Dude. I want to hear more oh. about this. But, ninety uh, people, ninety ninety people overdosed and died, or I don't know if they died, but they overdosed in the last month in my county where I'm from. What's the name of that county? Trumbull County. Trumbull County. Okay. God, it's like a it's like a swamp that you enter. <laughs> God bless you, Ohio. God bless you. I don't even know how it exists. I you know I went to Mexico, you know and. I'm in Chihuahua City, and I say, you know, this is nicer than Ohio. And they say, well, you're from America. And I say, well, no, I mean, just because you know, the, the word America doesn't imply that every single place is better than Mexico or better than a third world country. It just implies that uh, you can find yourself in a lot of locations that are, and, uh, you know what I mean? You can oh, find yeah. yourself in a, good amount, in a good amount of cities, and if you get yourself trained and learn a skill, you can find a job, and you can go to work, and you can buy a house. And um, if you're, you know, if things go right for you. And, um, but there are lots of places that aren't. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I can Is think there? of places in Pennsylvania, uh, Jersey, yeah. South Carolina, um, uh, West Virginia that, you know, are probably worse than places I've been in Thailand or Vietnam, for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean, yeah, like Chihuahua City is really nice. And I went to Santiago, Chile, and that one's really nice. But I went to Cambodia when I was in Korea. And, and Cambodia, Korea was, uh, Cambodia was not nicer than anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Cambodia was like, no, the, Cambodia was the second terrible place, I think. I mean, I liked 
as a tourist, but I couldn't imagine being a human, just like having to survive there. Right. And uh, Valparaiso, Valparaiso, Chile was really kind of terrifying and weird and um, shocking. It was really shocking to me. And uh, but like no, no, I think there's a lot of places in Mexico and Chile and all over the place that they are they rank higher than a bottom 30% of America ranks and, and nobody knows that. Like nobody says it out loud. It's so weird where everyone just pretends that all 100% of America is better than all 100% of like 90% of countries. Then that's what we actually think. Like you take 100% of Mexico or 100% of Chile or 100%, you know, and, and you can, and, and in an American's mind, the complete 100% of America is better than that 100%. Yeah, I mean, completely. the 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 idea that that's true is is ludicrous. <laughs> I know, but we do it. And then, um, well, it's the baby me, like, the so baby boomer generation is like the classic, right? Are, or you know, probably that are telling us growing up, like you know, well, America, you know, you're lucky you live in America. You know, you're lucky you don't live somewhere else. You know, that classic thing yeah. you hear as a kid. You know. Oh my God! And I heard it in Las Vegas. Like, oh, two weeks after 50 people got shot after that shooting. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, someone said that. Their, like, well, at least you live here. And you're like, what? Somebody. And I'm, I'm like sitting there like, what the fuck world do you live in? 50 people just got shot and, and 400 are injured. Four, no, like hundreds of people got shot and 50 something are dead. And two weeks after someone just said that, like it was the most innocent, normal thing that made sense in their head. And you're just like, do you have interest? What? Why? Why did you say that? <laughs> People would provoke you to think that after that. Yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, thinking about all these the different strange places in America and all the different strange minds, I mean, we could talk about that forever. But I mean, it that kind of goes back to what we were saying before, as I wish like more people thought about how much or how little rather that every idea that enters their mind is not something, <laughs> you know, that that's, that's the kind of oh stuff is why I probably, I'm probably like, uh, in, you know, probably sound crazy now to other people who've maybe not read this. Cause I'm like, you guys should really read this. Like, I know I say that about books cause I'm always telling people to read books. I'm like, but you should read blood soaked Buddha. I mean, really, it'll just make your like next morning, like more pleasurable, you know, I really yeah, think I mean, that. I I mean, I, I, what a, like, I'm supposed to have a hope about it. I guess the only, the, is the hope is that, like, you kind of realize that your mind is full of this chatter and you don't have to pay attention to it. And you kind of realize that, like, you are the Pascal part where you're, like, embarked on life. Like, you are, you have to make a bet about how you're going to live. You know, you're going to have to, you have to do that. And if you don't make the bet, you don't, I mean, it sounds punishing, but you need to take time in your life. And in your early, early 30s are a great time. And, you know, you just say, like, I'm going to really think about my life. I'm going to buy books or watch documentaries. I'm going to do something. Because if you don't make the bet, someone else is going to make that bet for you. Or you've let someone else make the bet for you. And you don't make the bet. And then you're going to die. You're going to be old. And you're going to get in a fucking bed and you're going to sit in there sick and you're going to be like, this is it. This is the game I played. I never, never was the star of my own game. I was never the star. I hid 
um, my entire life from everyone. And I demanded the reality conform to whatever I think it should be. So it would conform to how other, how I wanted other people to see me. You know, I wanted to appear like this and there was nothing there because there's nothing in appearances. It's all transitory. It's nothing's there. And so then you're old and you're in, you're in the hospital bed and you, you, it never happened, you know, like life never happened for you. And you went through the whole thing, hiding, holding yourself hostage, fighting reality. You're, you're so angry that you can't even drive a car to the fucking coffee shop because somebody pisses you off on the way there. Right. And then you get there. Like, like I saw, it was Baby Boomers. And um, <laughs> I mean, this might, this might be the anti-Baby Boomer book. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> But the guys, the guys with his wife, they're like 60-something years old. They're retired. For sure, this white guy had a, at least a good job, you know? His wife maybe had a good job. I don't fucking know. But they fuck up his drink, and he flips out. And yeah. he's like, I'm leaving. I'm going outside. I can't handle this. There's too many people <laughs> in here. And he's just berating her. And she's just sitting there, like, taking it. And that's her life, like taking it, and that's his life giving it, and it's 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 really boring. I mean, that's boring. Like a life like that, where you're just pissed all the time and predictable. Like I mean, what? I mean, even worse. What? Than, it, worse than boring. It's like heartbreaking. It's <laughs> it's sad. it's very sad. Yeah. I mean, we can. I think it's any of, any of us, you know, not even just the generation. I think you know not to beat it over the head, but the, the period that we're living in can, can, we can all fall to that, you know, be susceptible to like that kind of just reactionary, um, existence. So it's, yeah, that was, that's one of the things in Buddhism they talk about a lot is, um, spontaneity in, and, um, but see, the thing is, like, if you let go of good and bad, and you let go of, of, of demanding reality to conform to you, if you let go of discriminating between good and bad, of projecting your wants and needs on everything that you do, you know, it, it clears it away. And then you're spontaneous. And then your own life at this moment becomes incidental. And then when everything becomes incidental, then it becomes serendipitous. And then you can walk into your own kitchen. You know, you're just walking from your bedroom to your kitchen or you're going to go outside to get your mail and it, and, and it becomes so alive and glowing. It can glow, you know, and it's just serendipitous because anything can happen and you go outside and something cool could really happen. But if you go outside and you're like, God damn it, I got to get the mail. I went to work all fucking day and now I got to go get the mail. And now I got to walk a hundred feet for a hundred yards to get my mail. Now I have to do this. And then I have to go back in my house and then I have to take the garbage out. And then I have to do this. And then you like pick up the garbage and the garbage bag breaks. And you're like, Oh damn it. Why didn't my fucking roommate take out the garbage? <laughs> and, and yeah. Every moment. Well, you, you can't see anything in that, in that mindset. Do you see nothing? There's nothing. There's, there's, nothing. Yeah, there's nothing happening. There's just your, your, your insane yelling inside your own brain, I guess. Yeah, and what is that, man? What is it? You have so many body parts. Pick another one. <laughs> right. 
Use another one. Use your hands. Use your feet. You know, go jerk yourself off. I don't care. You do anything besides scream at yourself all day. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That the concept of spontaneity. I mean, you know, being calm and going outside to get the mail and not thinking about anything. Like you'll notice. You you talk about this a lot in the book, but I mean, you'll notice a color in a tree or you'll notice a sound you've never heard or something will occur to you that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. And that's, you know, obviously, you know, we're not all, you know, Zen masters or whatever, but that, that is, I guess, the ideal way to take in, take in moments and just, just be your, you know, be yourself and be around or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you're alive the whole time, the whole time you're alive. <laughs> I mean, right now, you and I are talking. You're in Las Vegas. I'm in Asheville. I'm in a basement. I have children sleeping upstairs, and I'm, like, looking at this old skateboard from a long time ago while I'm talking to you, and I'm, like, enjoying the conversation as well as I'm in, like, you know, it, I notice the skateboard, and I'm trying to, like, focus, and this is, you know, I I do it to myself every five seconds still. You know, I'm like, you know, like, oh, I better keep doing the thing I'm doing. And really, it's just like, just like, just enjoy this. Like right now you're breathing and you're staring at the skateboard and you're talking to somebody that you like far away. And this is cool. Yeah, that's what's happening. I mean, I mean, like dogs and rabbits, they're all doing things like that right now. <laughs> dogs, rabbits, snakes, lizards, they're all doing the same thing. I mean, they're just, they're not putting pressure on themselves to succeed or... You know, that everything works, you know, is the way they wanted it to work. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's it, you know. I think that's it. You I think... have... Yeah, that was the grand finale. That was the, that was the big finale. I think we figured... <laughs> I think this episode is going to be called Noah and Chris Figure It Out. And then it's going to... Everything will be fine now. <laughs> yeah, everything is going to be fine for you. Um send me money, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. I think all the problems are solved and uh, all the money's coming. All right. That was my conversation with Noah Cicero. He's uh, a badass and I hope that I get to go to Las Vegas again now that we've spoken so I can, uh, you know, have drinks with the guy and he can show me the real Vegas. The first time I went, it was very fun. We had just had a child. And, you know, I want to go back, play more cards, and see the real deal with Noah. Cool guy. But anyway, here is a excerpt from the audiobook that we recorded with Sarah Morsi, Blood Soaked Buddha, Heart of Pascal. Have you ever felt like you were endlessly chasing something? The situation we have now is that we are convinced if we just do or accomplish certain things— we will be solidified. The they teaches us that if we accomplish the specific goals of graduating high school, going to college, getting a job, getting married, and having children, an angel will come down from heaven and give us an award saying, good job, you win. To discuss this in a more nuanced way, Say our mother or father doesn't show us a lot of love because they have their own personal problems. Then we spend our adult life trying to accomplish things to make them happy, and we truly expect that one day they will love us. But it doesn't work. They never love us the way we want them to. The chase never ends. Resentful people think if they tell other people no enough, basically torturing their fellow humans, then their lives will be better. 
but their lives never become better. The resentful person might get a little adrenaline rush from one-upping someone, but an hour later the feeling is over, and they are again existentially left alone with their misery. Take Fleetwood Mac. They wrote the song Rhiannon, one of the greatest songs ever made by the human species. You would think after such an achievement, angels would have come down from heaven and anointed them with nirvana. Then Fleetwood Mac would have turned into beautiful glowing balls of light and just lived in the divine. But that didn't happen. They all had to keep living. As long as we are alive, as long as we are conscious, we have to keep living. If we are poor or rich, Filipino or Canadian, if we just wrote a song that will be played for decades, or if we work as a cashier at Toys R Us, or are a drunk homeless person shooting heroin in Karachi, Pakistan, we have to keep living. Our consciousness keeps flowing, desiring, remembering, contemplating the future, hoping, etc. All my life, I was always convinced that if I did the right things, I would be successful. I worked really hard in college. I got up early in the morning in Ohio, snow covering the ground, sometimes five degrees outside. I would drive to school in this bitter cold with the car tires spinning and sliding around in the snow. I took out massive amounts of student loans. I did what society told me to do. I got good grades. I made conversations with my professors. I read extra books to learn my subject of interest better. I showed enthusiasm. After college, I went and taught English in South Korea with a girlfriend. I worked hard there. I learned the alphabet of the Korean language. I learned several hundred Korean words. I lived in an area of Seoul where I often went days without seeing anyone else who spoke English as a first language. I thought all of this would give me experience to find a job. I thought it would show that I was a winner, a person that succeeds in life. When I went back to America, I had $7,000. I had a million stories to tell. I had everything going for me. In less than two months, my close friend had died of cancer, and my girlfriend left me. Then my family said they were selling the house and moving across the country. I had no home. I moved across America and couldn't find a job. I didn't know the town. I didn't know anyone there. I had no ability to network. My money kept depleting. I kept drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. I couldn't find my footing. I didn't know what to do. I moved to a small town outside Portland with the money I had left. A friend from high school with a good job let me live with her in an A-frame house on an old dirt logging road. It was the middle of nowhere on a small mountain. I went from living in Seoul, South Korea, the second biggest city in the world, where I had everything, my own apartment, a beautiful girlfriend, money in my pocket, prestige, and friends, to less than a year later being miserable and alone in the forest of Oregon. The Wi-Fi barely worked. I couldn't even watch YouTube videos. I had nothing left. No job, no money. Nobody cared about my Korea stories anymore. It was winter. I began hiking down the logging trail into the forest with a Labrador named Finn. 
It was cold. I would wear gloves and a stocking cap I purchased in Korea. There was no one out there in the forest, just trees and moss. I was alone during the days. My friend would work ten, maybe twelve hours a day, six days a week. I was left alone in the forest. I would sit and read. I had recently bought a copy of the Zen teachings of Bodhidharma with a Barnes and Noble's gift card someone had given me for Christmas. I read the line, The truth is, there's nothing to find. I sat there staring at it, saying to myself, What the fuck does that mean? No one in my life had ever said such a thing to me. Then, two pages later, it said, To say he attains anything at all is to slander a Buddha. What could he possibly attain? Things got even more isolating. A terrible snowstorm came and trapped me on the mountain for three days. Oregon doesn't have salt trucks because it rarely ever snows to such an extent that it demands them. So I was left there, on the mountain for three days, with Bodhidharma. No one in my whole life had ever said, There is nothing to find. Everyone my whole life had screamed at me, You have to keep moving, access your potential, keep working, fulfill your dreams. If you just work hard enough, you'll attain your dreams. I worked really hard and ended up just feeling like myself every day. Being myself never ended. No matter how much I drank, no matter how much I loved, no matter how many job applications I filled out, no matter how many times I showed up to work on time and did my job, no matter, no matter, no matter. It all just ended up with me being me, endlessly waking up with my body somewhere, having to continue. In the final pages of Being and Nothingness, Sartre slams down the same conclusion. Many men, in fact, know that the goal of their pursuit is being, and to the extent that they possess this knowledge, they refrain from appropriating things for their own sake and try to realize the symbolic appropriation of their being in itself. But to the extent that this attempt still shares in the spirit of seriousness and that these men can still believe that their mission of affecting the existence of the in-itself-for-itself is written in things. They are condemned to despair, for they discover at the same time that all human activities are equivalent, for they all tend to sacrifice man in order that the self-cause may arise, and that all are on principle doomed to failure. Thus it amounts to the same thing whether one gets drunk alone or is a leader of nations. If one of these activities takes precedence over the other, this will not be because of its real goal, but because of the degree of consciousness which it possesses of its ideal goal. And in this case, it will be the quietism of the solitary drunkard which will take precedence over the vain agitation of the leader of nations. No matter what we do in life, we can't be solidified. Our essence is not in ourselves. We are constantly in a state of creating ourselves, constantly in a state of becoming. Heidegger said that the definition of now means in order to. 
We exist constantly, without remorse, without end, in a state of, in order to. In Hindu mythology, there are gods that stand on a single toe for thousands of years, just standing on one toe and thousands of years pass. Then one day they stop. They put both feet flat on the ground and start walking again. It doesn't matter how long you meditate. When you are done meditating, you are yourself again, condemned to freedom and to participate in society. The truth is, there is nothing to find. As the snow fell in Oregon, I kept reading that line over and over again. I learned then that my fate was to be. To have this body, to wake up every day, myself. A few weeks later, I read from Dogen that a fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there is no end to the water. Which is like saying a human walks in their mind, and no matter how far the human walks, there is no end to the mind. There is no end to consciousness. It never completes itself. After I read these lines, my mind started to spin and spin. It couldn't hold itself together because every thought I had ceased to make sense. All my thoughts were geared toward accomplishment, consumed with becoming things, obsessed with how other people saw me, obsessed with impressing other people, with attaining personal goals on time, and even being resentful of the world for not giving me what I thought I deserved. I started hyperventilating, having panic attacks. I started crying, violently crying. I couldn't stop crying. Imagine a 33-year-old man crying and hyperventilating on a daily basis. I just couldn't think anymore. I didn't know how to deal with people. I eventually broke down. I lost the ability to speak. I had to be medicated because I had truly lost my mind. The mind that I had lost was the mind of control, because that's what we try to do when we try to attain things. We try to control reality. We believe intensely in doing things that will give us what we want. We demand that situations go our way. We demand that people view us in specific ways. We even demand of ourselves that we behave in a very specific manner. Everything was dreadfully serious. I was serious. Later on in the book, Bodhidharma says, Our endless sufferings are the roots of illness. When mortals are alive, they worry about death. When they're full, they worry about hunger. Theirs is the great uncertainty. But sages don't consider the past, and they don't worry about the future, nor do they cling to the present. And from moment to moment, they follow the way. We want everything to be certain, to be locked down, nailed down. I woke up every day forcing myself to suffer. No one was putting pressure on me. No one was demanding me to worry so much. No one was forcing me to consider the past, to worry about the future, to demand my now go right. No one was doing it but me. It is really hard to realize I might be doing this to myself. Basically, this only works if you allow yourself to admit to yourself 
the following three things. You have no real self. You are continuous. You exist in the conditional. You arise out of the conditional. You arise just as all things arise. As Bodhidharma said, to find the Buddha, all you have to do is to see your nature. To find the Buddha, all you have to do is see your nature. Your nature is the Buddha, and the Buddha is the person who's free, free of plans, free of cares. You will giggle endlessly. You do everything you did before. Go to the bank, go to the gas station, pump gas, call your friends, listen to music, show up to work and do your job. But you will do it not expecting rewards, not expecting to be solidified, not expecting anything to come of it, hopeless but okay with it. And when you walk down the street, instead of your mind swirling around wrapped up in the next new plan to acquire things, you will see the tree leaves flap in the wind. You'll see an old building you never saw before. You'll see children playing. The world will be there, instead of just your goal-oriented thoughts. The truth is, there is nothing to find. All right, everybody, that was it. Get the book, Bloodstoke Buddha, Heart Earth Pascal. Get it in print uh, from Trident. Get that on Amazon or wherever. Uh, get the audiobook from us, talkingbook.pub. That's talkingbook.pub. You can get books like the Sarah book, Literally Show Me a Healthy Person by Darcy Wilder. See what else we got. Catalina, Liska Jacobs. Um, we've done a crap load of books that are super important, I think. Selected Poems of Lee Poe, Henry Miller on Writing, Tales of Falling and Flying by Ben Laurie. But yeah, check them out, check us out, and uh, pick up this book by Noah Cicero. Um, I love everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, well, yeah. Okay, bye. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I knew that you were there. Like an angel who has forsaken certainty, sleeping in the square. I was lit before I knew the storm was passing over and the window.